Okay, so we've kind of spoke about your typical day, month, year uh, in your in your role, but what was not typical was last year when you jetted off to install the world's highest weather station. Um, so first of all, how did that even come about? How did you get approached? How did you end up on top of Everest? Yeah, that was um, was certainly an unusual thing to get uh, you know to be part of, and it started. Um, connected well the connection is to what i said really really early on in this in this in this chat i mentioned that we don't have many measurements from um the mountains and places that the glaciers are and i put in an application to national geographic to get some funding to install some weather stations in the indian himalaya and i outlined there in the application that those weather stations should they be funded and installed would be two of the highest weather stations in the world um, they weren't particularly high what I was suggesting you just reflected the fact that um, well the Indian Himalaya are high to begin with um, you know you fly in uh, to this particular city it's 3,500 meters that's a long way higher um, two and a half times pretty much the height of Ben Nevis so you start at great altitude um, it certainly wasn't you know uh, uh, a huge, hugely tall order to satisfy to say these would be um, two of the highest weather stations in the world. It just so happened that National Geographic were planning to go to Mount Everest to conduct the largest scientific, um, multidisciplinary scientific expedition as yet undertaken or planned at that time. Um, so it in partnership with, with Rolex. What they do when they're planning an expedition like this is they look through their grantees. I was awarded that grant, by the way, partly because really important area, this in the Indian Himalaya. Lots of people living downstream of the glaciers depend on the, the freshwater to some extent to um, provide the required irrigation for their agricultural systems and drinking water. So I was, I was a, a National Geographic grantee at the time, I'd received a grant. And what National Geographic do when they're planning one of their expeditions, they look through their grantees, their active grantees, to see who has expertise in the relevant fields to um, kind of help plan and conduct the science that will be done on the expedition. So obviously my entire PhD was putting up weather stations on glaciers um, in then it was actually it was Iceland as well as well as Sweden so working on the Langjökull ice cap there and obviously I was putting these weather stations up in the Indian Himalaya so um, the, the, the lead, lead scientist uh, is a guy called Paul Mieski um, at the University of Maine in the States. Fantastic and very well accomplished scientist. He spent literally years in Antarctica in tents. Um, and he was overseeing the scientific team. He was putting it together. Um, but I think National Geographic suggested to him that I might be um, a good fit. And I was invited to a meeting quite early on. This back in the days when we could all travel, but you know, the drop of a hat. Um, so it was pretty much two years ago to the, this time of year, it was, it was end of August, early September, that. I arrived in um, Washington DC, this was just after I started at Loughborough actually, um, to talk about the, the prospect of, of doing this. And at the time, you know, I remember just finding it so surreal, they were planning to put a weather station very near the top of, of Everest and you know, turning to me and saying, um, what, what kind of things do we need? What should we measure? And I, just, I was just so excited that I had the opportunity to feed in at this point. And to cut a long story short, um, Myself and another scientist from North America, who was well, well known to Paul already and worked together with him a lot, a guy called Baker Perry um, from Appalachian State University in North Carolina, were put together to, um, to help lead the installation of the weather stations. And 
Baker was, you know, just couldn't ask for a better person to, to work with. Um, so that started in, um, yeah, the real planning kickoff meeting, I think was in October, 2018. And we were due to go and do it in, or to leave in March, 2019. So there was, <laughs> there's not much time for a big expedition like that. So that's how it started. That's how I was, um, like, you know, lucky enough to be drafted in to, to help with that. So how did you prepare yourself for this? Cause I don't think a typical, a typical scientist or any other person, in fact, if they said to me, right, you've got to mm. climb top of Everest, you know, in a, mm. in a month, even if it, a year, I wouldn't even know where to start preparing for that. So <laughs> did you have to have like a routine or anything to get you ready for this? Yes. Uh, the, yes to, to, to those questions. We did need, um, we needed to work hard and quickly. I mean, I, I'm not a, a professional, well, clearly not a professional mountaineer. Um, I, I like the mountains, spend a lot of time in the mountains, um, but I was not a technical mountaineer. I've done some rock climbing, some lead climbing, um, and some sort of winter, so Arctic uh, winter travel things where you're moving with sleds and building snow holes and that kind of thing. But I'm not, certainly not um, someone that was there uh, as a, you know, on the merits of being a mountaineer. That wasn't why I was drafted in. Um, but the interest that I, I had, and the same with the other scientists that were there, the other scientists that were um, going to work higher on the mountain, we all like our kind of endurance sports. And, and the other two guys actually do even more in the mountains. So, you know, regularly had gone to over 6,000 metres in South America and the Andes there. I'd been 6,000 metres in the Indian Himalayas before. So whilst it's a, an enormous stretch, um, you know, it wasn't as alien as it would be to many people. Mm. I knew what was involved in going to, well, I had an idea of what would be involved in going to over 8,000 metres in the Himalayas. And at that, the point I joined the expedition, actually, I was not meant to be going right to the highest point. I was going to be going to Camp 2, which is 6,400 metres. Still through the icefall, the Kimball Icefall, which is kind of the most scary bit. Um, but we knew approximately what was in store and it didn't put us off because it's kind of self-selecting this, this field. So, you know, work in mountain weather and climate and glaciers because I love mountains and like being in those environments. So mm. and the same with the other scientists that are there. So we knew what was, you know, what was in store and that's why we were so excited about being involved in it. It wasn't as though we were approaching our desk jobs by National Geographic to say, would you want to go up, up here? We we're of course, you know, in that area because we want to be doing that kind of stuff and that's why our research was already aligned but then yeah we had to work very hard very quickly national geographic gave us all the resources and help needed to um you know do things like from planning workout um routines to we had a pilot expedition in january where we went to uh nepal in the winter did ice climbing and practicing the lead ascending lead ropes um oh, sorry ascending fixed lines which is an unusual thing that's done in, in mountaineer say unusual it's not the way that the, the you know mountains in the Alps are typically climb. They're climbing what's called Alpine style. The Himalayan peaks, you are climbing fixed lines that um, other mountaineers have gone ahead and, and 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 put in, and you're using a device that that's what I should have used as my artifact <laughs> um, that that helps you ascend at the line. So it, it only moves one way. It's attached to your harness, and you you slide it up, and then it, it holds you. So that's what most of, you know, the mountaineering on these big peaks and the commercial expeditions um, climb. That's how they're doing that. You're ascending these fixed lines. We did all the training for that in January. 
let's say I run, you know, I run marathons. Um, I did lots of running uh, to get fit. You need, you need to be fit to, to do, to undertake an Everest expedition. You need enough technical, um, you know, expertise to, to make sure you can abseil and go up the ropes mm. and, and, and whatnot. Um, and beyond that, you know, ideas of being on, being on glaciers and being in cold environments um, that you, you kind of need to, to get through something like that because the way that Pete Athens, who ended up leading the climbing um, on the expedition, he was a climbing lead. He's, he's summited Everest seven times. His, his name's Mr. Everest. He's a wow. fantastically accomplished mountaineer and, and he, he kept us very safe. The way he described Everest is it's a suffer fest. You know, you're there to endure and, and suffer. Um, and you, you do need to be fit, but you don't need to be um, an Olympic athlete to, to get out. It's about, it's about um, endurance in the sense of the word that you are enduring the environment and all the demands for months for months on end and mm. um, yeah lots of fitness to get ready to go but also m- more demanding was getting the science ready to go everything from designing the weather stations to preparing the weather forecast we delivered to us automatically on the mountain via satellite phone that kind of stuff it was an incredible time it was really intense but incredibly rewarding and fantastic to work with like so paul baker and the other people on the team it sounds brutal just from what you've said but you also went at a time when there was a huge issue with overcrowding mm. what was that like and did you face any other difficulties while you were ascending yes yeah, so it was it was a very busy year and that was because of the weather actually or the, rather the weather had a very large part to play in that so the weather would dictate when people could make their summit attempts you can only head up high on the mountain when the winds um, are not too strong and if the winds are blowing hard for a long time then no one can 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 make their summit attempt if you only get a few days and the winds drop everyone is going to be forced through that through that bottleneck mm. and as it happened there were a lot of permits granted that year but there have been similar numbers granted in other years, but the, the weather windows were just just so that everyone was funneled into these into these very um, short periods. So that yeah, that was a, was a problem, um, but you know it wasn't a, too much of a surprise either because you can you can see the number of people um, when you're up there moving between the high camps. We knew that it could potentially be a problem. It became as you as anyone who's seen the documentary will know, it became really apparent on the night that we tried to go. Um, towards the summit to install the highest weather station and ultimately we had to modify our plans because of the, the number of people on the, on the mountain but again we had a really good fantastically experienced Sherpa team and Sherpa lead um, and you know we were never really in doubt that he'd, he'd make the correct call you know he knows the mountain he knows the times knew the times very well the times being how long would it take us to get to the summit based on the speed that we were moving based on the number of people that were ahead and with that, you know, how long would we have to, to try and install the weather station given those extrapolations? And we have the big constraint up there of oxygen availability. You can only last as long as the tank that you're carrying on your back that's supplying the air that you breathe. It's like being an underwater diver in many senses. So obviously the weather is an issue, the overcrowd is an issue. Uh, am I right in thinking as well you got sick while you were climbing? Uh, yeah, I think it's one of the, um, I don't know how common it is, but I think it's pretty common. But one of the, uh, the less talked about challenges of, of trying to climb Everest is that um, 
you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to be trying to climb it whilst you're sick <laughs> or at least at some point during the climb you'll be you'll be sick and i don't mean you know you're nauseous and you're, you're vomiting the most typical uh sicknesses are well actually stomach upsets can be quite common um but also respiratory infections so we had a bad case of a kind of um, epidemic of flu in the in our team now our team was unlucky because we were quite big um, we had lots of scientists doing different things uh, some at base camp and lower some higher up on the mountain and unfortunately as we all know too well now in the world that we're currently in social distancing is key and that's harder to do when there are lots of people sharing a relatively small space. So we would all come together to eat our meals in the, in the base camp tent. And I think you know, there might be around 25 people in that tent at once. One person's unlucky enough to get sick. Pretty soon everyone's sick. Mm. So, yeah, I had, I think, uh, one or two respiratory infections and a, and a stomach issue when I was there. And unfortunately, most of our, most of our team did. Thankfully, when we actually went for kind of the highest... Um, science part of the expeditions and we moved towards the summit we were most of us were we'd all pretty much recovered from the the sicknesses that, that we had but to say that you're 100 percent would be stretching it um so you know you, you don't really get away you don't really lose the the kumbu cough that you people may have heard of the the very dry air um, irritates the the back of your throat and um you kind of have a semi-permanent sore throat even if you've cleared any any respiratory infections that also may have caused the sore throat earlier. Um, so you never quite feel 100% uh, even when, when you're healthy. But some of that reflects these, these infections, but also a fascinating observation um, up there is that the altitude really does do some interesting things to your body, including you lose a lot of weight, even if you're, even if you're healthy. So even if you're not sick, um, your appetite plunges. Um, and you actually become less fit when you're up there. Now, studies have shown that your VO2 maximum, there are any sports people out there that, that know about your VO2 maximum, typically lower after you come back from an Everest expedition than when you set out, which can seem counterintuitive because you spend almost every day when you're heading uphill sucking for air, you know, breathing deeply. The equivalent mm -hmm. of however you feel when you're trying to run a 5K, when you're running at you know, pretty intense pace it's the same kind of intensity that you've been moving at when or you're working at when you're when you're climbing there so you're breathing hard and you come back actually less fit than when you went out so there's a bizarre attritional effect of altitude in the body to to overcome fascinating yeah really challenging how was it coming back then because to me doing that getting to the top seeing what you've seen coming back must be kind of like oh <laughs> back to everyday life it is then um, so how was it coming back? And you also had to deal with a lot of media work. Um, so how was that trying to get, you know, back used to everyday life and then having to put press on top of that? It's really interesting actually to reflect on that. The, the coming back bit. Yeah, it was, um, I suppose it, it is a bit of an anticlimax coming back for me. It's just, it's a, it's an incredible place. Everest. So I know that, you know, it's kind of lost some of its, uh, you know, um, romantic ideal, I suppose, because it's been climbed by thousands of people now. It's very familiar to many people. Um, but you know, there's a reason that many people have tried to climb it. There's a reason that it's so famous. It's not just that it's the highest mountain on earth. It is an incredibly awe-inspiring landscape. The, the Western Coombe that is, you know, overlooked by not just Everest, but Lhotse and Nupti, 
and then you've got Pomori Peak on the side. If you like the mountains, it is phenomenal and so awe-inspiring. You know, you hear the you hear the ground shake most nights when you're laying in your tent from avalanches that are are going, you know, happening far enough away that you're not worried about them. But it's just such a dynamic and and um, imposing landscape. And I've certainly spent a fair bit of time in mountain ranges around the world. And I and I had heard from other people in places like the Pyrenees, the Alps, and have been to the Himalayas, and even in the Indian Himalayas, um, that had actually, you know, said, "Oh, were the Himalayas in Nepal? Oh, they're not so impressive. You, you know, because you're already up high, you don't really see the um, the great grandiose nature of the mountains because you're, you know, they're not that much higher than you. No, if they're, it's incredible. The, the, they are like nothing I've ever seen anywhere else. They are." They are monsters in every way and mm. really, really impressive. Um, so coming back, yeah, of course, you, you're leaving that landscape behind um, and getting back into the, into the day job, is, is, it's the same as it is for, for many great adventures like that. It's a bit of a, a shock mm. to the system. But actually, there are so many things to do in terms of, in our case, looking at the data, coming back from the weather stations, uh, making sense for everything that had, had happened. Um, there was plenty to keep busy with. And in terms of the, the press activity or the media activity, um, yeah, it was something that was, you know, really is a real privilege to be, to be part of, to be talking about these really important things because we weren't going to Everest for fun. You know, this, the research that, that's done there is, is really important. Um, hundreds of millions of people living downstream of these, of these catchments. And there are, there, are, there are data from Everest, but very limited data in terms of weather and the other kind of glaciological data that other members of the team were collecting. And it's been recognised in these research communities that data are needed from these places. It's just so hard to get and, it, and it's not cheap and it's risky that you don't see much ground being made. I mean, some fantastic researchers out there have been making ground slowly for years, getting data from these hard to reach environments. But going to the upper slopes of Everest is a huge undertaking. And it takes someone like National Geographic who's willing to take the risk to come on board and to, and to back something in order for that to change. So it's a tremendous privilege to be part of that and also to get the opportunity to sort of tell the story afterwards. You know, to say, well, mm. yes, we're doing this and it, it may be the highest weather station, the highest ice core uh, in the world. But there's a reason that these places are being visited. And, and this is the story, the wider story around what's going on in the high mountains. That the climate is changing and we are seeing more ice melt. And this is unusual in the context of thousands of years. And that this matters for people living downstream. And it also matters, the same story is playing out in the Karakoram, so in, in Pakistan, in South America, in the Rocky Mountains of North America, in the Alps. So it was, it was, really, it was really rewarding to get to be part of, of that, of that uh, process. And National Geographic have an incredible platform. They reach a lot of people. Mm. So it was a real privilege to be part of that.